to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast and today I'm talking to Gray Connolly who is a barrister in Sydney and his practice is mainly in constitutional law, public law, equity, corporations and resources law which leaves very little law that he doesn't cover and he lectures in constitutional law and serves as a senior member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal previously served as a naval intelligence officer in the Royal Australian Navy, which I would love to hear about, but he's probably not allowed to talk about it. Um, But finally, Gray, lovely to have you on the podcast. And I understand that all the opinions you will have today, of which there will be many, I'm sure, are your own and yours alone. Yes. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. And uh, yes, every opinion that I will utter here, Georgina, is entirely my own. (laughs) <laughs> which not I've, that of any entity or agency. Well, which I would have thought is, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have you on this podcast because you do have opinions, they are your own and they're interesting. Uh, Gray, you have written a lot about and spoken a lot about conservatism and I, I wanted to start a conversation today about Australian conservatism and it's different it's different from American. We were just talking about this before. Um, the evolution of, of our, of our nations is a, it's a different, different foundation story. It's different again from British conservatism too. Can you tell me about Australian conservatism in, in your view and your view alone? <laughs> okay. Okay. In my view, I think Australian conservatism is a very interesting sort of hybrid of both the sort of Anglo American influences that that influence us. I mean, we are an English-speaking country. We are influenced by people who speak a similar language, come from similar cultures. And I would emphasise from the very beginning that Australia is obviously still quite a young country. I mean, we only federated in 901. One thing that was very interesting about Australia as opposed to, say, America, is whereas the Americans rebelled against the idea of the Crown and against the state, ever since British settlement of Australia, the Crown's played a very large role and the state has played a very large role. And I think Australians, to some degree, have never, ever not expected the state to play a role in the affairs of the society. And I think that is something that I think people from outside and even from inside do not quite appreciate, and that is that Australians have always seen government as having a positive role to play. And I mean by positive, I mean constructive. I don't mean that government itself is more government is good. I just in sense of it being constructive. And at the same time, I also think there's a very strong communitarian element to Australia and Australian culture in the sense of we're a country of surf life-saving clubs, volunteer fire brigades, local clubs, local sporting societies, you know, even, you know, cooperatives, things like the arts and crafts and the like, you know, the, and, and let's not forget, I'm, I'm in New South Wales, the, the Country Women's Association do incredible work and, you know, the, the Return Services League. We have all these sort of bodies that are not of the state but sort of reinforce a lot of the good in society. And I think that makes us slightly different from most other cultures. And I, I would just stress we are very much a work in progress because we're also a immigration, a very high immigration society. I, I speak as the child of migrants. And, and we're a society in which we have new cultures coming to the country all the time. And 
and and often bringing themselves sort of a, a communitarian aspect to it. And so the way we accommodate that is through a particularly Australian pluralism. So in Australia, we've never really had the separation of church and state cultures. We have a much more pluralistic culture. You actually see that, I always say this to build in the constitution. Our constitution's preamble has that we are humbly relying upon the blessings of Almighty God. God is in our constitution because our settlement is a pluralistic one. It's not, and which means you can have any religion and no religion, but it is a settlement in which people can be of any faith and no faith and they're free to do whatever they want. But it's in a culture where that's not outside the public square. Indeed, that's part of it. And so I think that's something that's very, very different about our culture and our conservatives. Electorally, we are slightly different insofar as uh, obviously right of centre politics in Australia has been since the 1890s about uh, a form of coming together and then falling apart in the face of the fact we've had one Labor Party. And to be fair to the Labor Party, it's the one cohesive party we have against which the right has always had to organise, which is slightly different again. But again, our Labor Party was not sort of revolutionary party. It was very much an agent of the, the trade union movement, which mm. itself comes out of, say, Methodism and low churches in the, in the British Isles. And so it is different again. So I think it's, I think it's an interesting hybrid that we have. And I think it's something we're still building on. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting, I think, to reflect just on the Australian story here that, as you say, the, the center right of, or the right of Australian politics, be it the, the classical liberals, the conservatives and all in between have constantly reinvented themselves. I mean, we've had a continuity since 44, of course, with Menzies Liberal Party and the, the country party rebranded, of course, as the National Party. But that's, before that, it was United Australia Party, the Nationalists, the Reed Free Traders, the, you know, the Deaconite Liberals. There was a lot of mess <laughs> on the centre right. And for a long time, people in the country party, for instance, would see what becomes the Liberal Party as the party of the banks. And for a lot of people uh, who who grew up, say, voting country party, very often there was a sense in which their second preference might be for Labor, not the Liberals, because the Liberals were the party of the city, they were the party of the banks. And we had terrible depressions in the 1890s and 1930s that scarred a lot of people. And I think that is just something that people need to have in the back of their mind. The other thing is that I think the fundamental event in Australian history that changes everything is the First World War. The First World War has such a catastrophic effect on Australian society in terms of its losses and what it does also in the relationship between the Commonwealth and the States is the Commonwealth just becomes more powerful. So prior to the First World War, you have a lot of regional differences where people think of themselves as Tasmanians or Queenslanders or South Australians and the like. Very much after the First World War, there's much more of a, I guess, a nationalist spirit about the country, but also the, just the, the sheer losses of the First World War changed the society a lot. And I think that reinforces that paternalism role because, you know, in the Australian population in the First World War, you have something like you know, one in five men of any age go and fight in the war. We have enormous casualties. So the state's just simply going to have to fill, fill that role through pensions and through looking after people. And there's just a big role for the state in Australian society. There may have been differences from here to there about what government should be doing, but, but there was a view that government had certain positive roles to do. And you can see that even in the Constitution, the enumerated heads of power for the national government under Section 51 is that there's just so many heads of power that the Commonwealth is expected to be able to legislate on for the good of the country. And I, I think that's just something that's different, again, from our system, from other kindred um, constitutional states. Yeah, and I, I do find, having spent some time working in the United States and obviously here in Australia and, and the UK, there's not a neat correlation between our politics, uh, you know, as much as, you know, say, liberals in Australia might see their their fellow 
political travelers in the Republican Party in the United States. But, but as you say, there's, um, you know, fundamental differences with our foundation story. And, uh, you know, the fact that America was founded on violence and, mm. and, yes. and has a bill of rights and has a huge, yes. as you were saying, it's this huge skepticism of government. Just, just that's innate in, in Americans. Um, even the way we, we dealt with COVID in Australia. Um, we all, I mean, I was quite astounded. I don't know about you, but I, I was quite astounded how quickly Australians were willing to give up their, their liberties just for the sake of the protecting the community from a, an unknown, really unknown illness. Whereas in America, and I have relatives who live in Texas, they just say, oh, no one bothers. No, no, you know, oh, no, we're not going to get vaccinated. No, we're not going to wear masks. No, we're not going to have a lockdown. I mean, obviously it differed between sort of Democrat states and, and Republican states, but, but they're, they're much more libertarian. They're much more skeptical of, of authority, of state authority than Australians are. I, I, I during COVID had this, uh, I stupidly volunteered to almost try and explain Australia to, particularly to Americans. Because you're always reading about how we were under this terrible medical tyranny, which I always joke to Americans meant that I could visit my doctor without being bankrupted. But I, 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 it's, it's a different, it's just a different culture. And I think it all comes back from that, that founding. The Americans rebel against government. They rebel against the crown. They want their sort of natural born freedoms or what have you. We do not do that. In fact, obviously Australia's colonization is a consequence of the British losing the American colonies and needing somewhere else to go. And as I always point to Bill, but for a few weeks and some, some decent wins. I think there is something in the in the joke that the problem with Australians is not that they're descended from the convicts, but they're de- they're descended from their jailers. Yeah, the and prison they're, officers. They're, they're, yes, yeah, yeah, was yeah, it yeah. Clive James? Australians I think are, he said that. Yeah, you know, some, some joke <laughs> that Australians are a nation of wardens, not a nation of convicts. We're a nation of wardens, and it's true. And I always say this to people: I said in Australia, I said we are a very much, I guess, anti-dramatic people. And I always say to people: if there is a queue, join the queue. Do not jump the queue. Like if you if you value your life and you're Australian, you see a queue. Join the queue. Do not jump the queue. I said, you know, do not do not shout. Do not you know, make a drama of yourself. Just play the game. And generally speaking, you know, things will work out. And one of the reasons why that is the case is because generally speaking, our public services work quite well. They don't work perfectly. You know, we've all had terrible experiences trying to renew a driver's license and so on. And and I mean, the classic example of that is the Australian Electoral Commission. You know, the Austra- Australians universally accept the Australian Electoral Commission. Yeah, yeah it's a statutory yeah. body. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no necessary reason why you should, but it's earned a certain performance legitimacy over time that people think it works well and we trust it. We trust it to do the right thing. And I think with COVID, I think there was an element of that is that generally speaking, we don't have, we've had kind of quite well-regulated medical bodies. I'm not saying they got it all perfectly right, but most people have a certain trust in their local doctor and what their doctor recommends. And most of our medical bodies yet are not completely captured by idiots. And so my, they, they sort of trusted in what they were saying. And whereas in America you have very politicized medicine, we we did not have like a Fauci figure, and we didn't have we don't have sort of like celebrity doctors or you know the Doctor Roz type problems that Americans have. So we don't we lack, I guess, the sort of charlatan grifter complex that Americans have that then breeds <laughs> distrust that makes you a libertarian. Did, did you run like, that line with the Americans when you were trying to tell them about? <laughs> uh, I've always said that. I said, I said one of the greatest. I've, I've said that to Americans. One of the great advantages we had is we did not have a Fauci. So we did not, and we did not have the sort of grifter charlatan complex that Americans have that, that would make anyone into a libertarian. I mean, Melbourne was the most locked down city yes. in the world. Sorry, I should. I should um, I should, and so, sorry. you know, they were, the, for example, Brett Sutton. I even know who the chief health officer of Victoria is. Of course I do, because he was on my TV every day for two years. But he became a kind of a cult figure 
yeah, people would make cushions of Brett Sutton. They would, f- women were fawning over his good looks. Was he having, wearing a beard today? Was he clean shaven? And, and, you know, this, this was a, it was a sort of a cult-like figure. I'm not saying Brett, it was the fault of Brett Sutton particularly. Um, and each state had their own idiosyncrasies over, how much power the chief health officer had. I mean, South Australia gave a lot of power to the chief health officer. I think there was less power in other states. But, um, you know, we, you couldn't, you could, it, governments sort of ended up, elect, democratically elected governments ended up being in a position where it was pretty difficult for them to go against the advice of the chief health officer. And that was a, that was a media story if they did. What a scandal. Brett Sutton said to do this and Daniel is Andrews it, said is going to do something no. else. How dare he? <laughs> what you've said is, I, I retract that. I guess I, this is a peculiar Sydney problem. Like we had Dr. Chant, she was she was quite sensible, and we had yeah. Gladys, who was quite sensible. Yeah. And I think perhaps in Sydney, perhaps we should be banned from commenting on the COVID because we had quite a sensible. We had a good COVID. Good COVID. <laughs> we, we, had, we had the least worst COVID, I think, of anyone in the country. So, you did. So, you did. I mean, and so perhaps 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 this is a narrow view, and so I want to caveat that. But I think. Going back to the early point, I just think Australians, there is something in that saying about Australians being descended from the wardens, mm. not the convicts, and that mm. there is an element of us that likes authority and we like uh, rules. Just to go back about your point about uh, relatives in Texas, the like, Australians love rules. Yeah, we, we do. We love bureaucracy. We love forms. We love filling out forms. We love queuing to fill out forms and then queuing again to submit the form. We actually do love that. And, and, and people, people can laugh at that, but we actually do like that. And even... Yeah, it's true. The man from Snowy River, the the digger storming Gallipoli—they're all great national symbols. We all revel in. But as I always joke to people, Ned Kelly, you could storm Gallipoli, Ned Kelly. But I always say, before you could storm Gallipoli, you had to fill out a lot of forms. And so, so that's just part of the Australian character. Is we we love to fill out forms. And I think I think there is something very process orientated and quite bureaucratic about it. But it is part of the Australian character that I think only a fool would deny. And and, and it, it exists. And I think that is part of a small C conservatism. Yeah, look, I think I think you're absolutely right, but I have to admit I was quite surprised. I've I've lived. I'm half English. My my mum my mum's English. I was born there, and and all my family lives there. So I've I've worked there, and I've always thought England was much more of a nanny state, much more into queuing, much more into rules in Australia. I I I kind of bought into. A, a lackadaisical Australian with you know egalitarian. We don't really you know trouble ourselves with the with the form filling and everything and then I got a bit of a rude shock over the last two years and I, oh no 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 we we're actually we were much more nanny state we were much more law abiding and and devoted to the rules than the UK for example I mean forget America but my relatives in the UK you know even my father is saying, oh, no, no one's following the lockdown, especially after, you know, 18 months of it. No, 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 no. People are just going out and they're just, you know, blast the rules. I don't care. I'm just going to exercise my, my sort of civil liberty to, to fraternize and see my grandma. And, uh, and that, that was to me a huge surprise. But, but tell me, Gray. The individual, in your view of, of Australia's sort of small C conservative tendency, and I think as, as fundamentally as a nation, we, I mean, of course, those on the left would, would say this is wrong, but, but fundamentally our national character is pretty conservative. How does the individual fit into that though? 
Um, the individual fits into that, but in the context of a community. And in some respects, I would say this actually is a very British side of us. And like you, all my family lives in the UK. My, my parents were, my parents were British Empire immigrants. So, so, um, yeah, I think that's something we do get from the British. And that is, we do have an emphasis on the individual, but it's the individual in the context of his or her family. And mm. so, you know, your, your, your first status is, you know, son or daughter. You then become brother and sister. You then become, you know, husband or wife and you know you look after children you look after your parents when they're sick and so on. i think that's how sort of conservatism posits where the individual comes in i think conservatism generally and i think any type of this is true of any type of conservative has trouble with the individual being an end in themselves i think that is that is something conservatism as opposed to liberalism has a philosophical problem with is the idea of the individual to be to be free completely or to be free even largely, because a conservative would always say, well, you've always got duties as well as rights. You've always got things that you should do. And there's always a certain sort of moral judgment that a conservative person feels. And it's a bit like, as I always try and explain to people, and you, I, I really don't think you have to be Christian to appreciate this, but you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son, it's not just the story of the son repenting and coming back to the father, because that's an image of the generosity and openness of God and forgivingness. What, 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 if you're conservative, what, what really upsets you is the fact the son is a deadbeat. He leaves his family. He goes off and le- leads a wastrel's life and disgraces the family. And he's sort of got to, you know, sort of endure that. And that's, and it's kind of funny. Every, every person who's kind of conservative say, look, I understand the parable son, but I'm not quite co- comfortable with it because you know, at the fundamental part of conservative is, is a, is a value system in which you should be rewarding virtue and you should be punishing vice. And you know, here we are. We're, yeah, if you if you forgive this prodigal son, you're just going to get more of them, and uh, and it's a kind of interesting. So I think there is an element of conservatism which is n- never going to be neutral in a way. I think liberalism likes neutrality, and that is well, you do you, and you live your life, and that's a matter for you. Whereas conservatism is much more about well, no, when you do you, and you do a bad version of you, that has downstream effects on other people, and so that's why we're not interested in encouraging you to be you. We're <laughs> encouraging you to be a better you, and. And we will use the power of the state to force you, if needs be, to be a better you, because letting you be the worst you, while perhaps the liberal response, is actually going to have downstream effects on innocent people who are not you. And so, unfortunately, we have to use the power of the state to coerce you to be a better you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a difference between conservatism and liberalism. And I think it's also why, in a sense, conservatives and liberals, while post-Cold War, we had sort of an alliance because we had a bigger bigger enemy to worry about. Sure. Um, yeah. I think that's why conservatism and liberal have trouble sort of cohabiting the same politics. And I think in some respects we would all be better off if we were just honest about where we come from instead of trying to pretend that there is a conservative acceptance of liberalism that there just can never be. And we would just be better off like that. You know, I always say to people, you, I, said, I always say to people who are sort of smaller liberals, you'd be better off demonising us as sort of judgmental, scolding authoritarians and we would be better off demonising you as sort of like, you know, wastrel degenerates. I said, yeah, we should be honest. And that way... Having agreed our differences, we can come together and compromise on things where we can. And I said we're much better. We're much better off that way than pretending these differences don't exist because they do. Well, well, indeed, indeed. I mean, and they're fundamentally they're fundamental differences. But through the through Menzies Liberal Party, there had been at least a, a pretty pretty neat coming together of the two sides. I mean, it's had its ups and downs, and I'd say the moment is a is a bit of a down but um as you were talking it did make me think uh, of Menzies forgotten people broadcast and that it, it, that's obviously one speech he gave 80 years and one week ago uh, almost to the day and that 
you know, there's a lot of emphasis there on Holmes, human, material, and spiritual. And when you when it comes to Holmes, human, you, he's talking about children, and he's very focused on you don't have your raise your children to think about how they can improve their own lot in life. It's about how do they improve the lot of the community, of the nation. The ultimate patriotic duty is to raise good citizens who will give back to the community, which is, which is, as you describe it, is a fundamentally conservative aspiration. It is. It is. I mean, that, that whole idea of Menzies, and I, I've never understood why, Abbott and others moved away from this. They should have really leaned into this. I think the idea of what Menzies said about lifters. When he was talking about lifters, he wasn't talking about, you know, grasping people. He was talking about lifters, as in people who went above and beyond to, to lift those around them. And you actually need a society full of lifters and, and at different times and in different ways, but you actually need a society of lifters. And Menzies, Menzies, Menzies Forgotten People is interesting because it is something which came back into the sort of, you know, I guess, right of centre politics as discussion. Only, I think, recently, because when I was growing up, it really was not emphasised. And Menzies was sort of a person who a lot of people of the right did not know what, quite what to do with. In the same way, Malcolm Fraser was also someone they did not quite know what to do with. And it's and it's interesting in a sense because both of Menzies and Fraser represented a certain type of Australian conservatism, which I think is readily understandable and it is not foreign. And and it's very interesting. I mean, Menzies, Menzies is predated by Lyons. And, and one of the interesting things about Lines and Menzies, though, for our time is a lot of things that people squabbled over then were different from what we squabble over now. In those days, no one doubted, for instance, whether you're on the right or left of politics, that you know, marriage was between a man and a woman. There were certain fundamentals of society that they agreed on. Both left and right agreed, for instance, on censorship of a lot of things, um, you know, no bad language around children, you know, cult, you know, a lot of cultural norms they agreed on. They disagreed on all the economic ones, but sure. on a lot of the cultural things they agreed. And I think, I think there's a danger for people in trying to not, trying to misappropriate Lyons, Menzies and the like into today's time because they were wrestling with very different problems. I think the interesting thing about Lyons particularly, I find, I find Lyons very interesting. And one of the great problems with Lyons is that while Dame Enid Lyons was a great writer, Lyons himself does not seem to have been. Um, the Anne Henderson biography of Lyons, I think, is great. I think it's a great read. But Lyons I find very interesting. I mean, perhaps a typical Catholic who is too interested in doing good works, not enough in you know, recording the faith, etc. But Lyons sort of comes from that sort of, he does come from the later side, but he brings a sort of distinctly Australian conservative approach to things. One of the most interesting things about Lyons, and we're, we're t- discussing things on the date of the coronation, but Lyons during the abdication crisis was, was quite incredible because from everything I've read, he was just an absolute no on, on, on the king marrying Mrs. Simpson, you know, the king cannot do this. Because and he, he had a very sort of you know, traditional sort of morality, which most Australians of that time would absolutely have shared. And and it's a very interesting thing to ponder. I mean, had, had the Dominion Prime Ministers taken a different view, you would have had a different king. We would not have had the queen we have today, etc. And in some respects, that's the contingency of history. But it's just interesting in the sense of Lyons was dealing with a different world, but it was a world in which even in the Depression, there were certain agreements between the society about what we allowed and what we did not. Menzies comes through the war and, you know, Menzies comes through that difficult experience of the war where he loses his, his cabinet and the Canberra air disaster in 1940 and then he goes into opposition. And it's really there that he formulates the forgotten people and he actually realises yeah. actually this is what we should be talking about. This is These are our people. And I think what people f- fail to realise is there are lots of you know, 
caricatures of Menzies as a slightly pompous anti-Delivian person, you know, the man who had the, the, the car, the car stand put into the, his football ground so he could watch his beloved Carlton play without <laughs> mingling with the hoi. I mean, that's all true. But Menzies in the forties, you know, he's an opposition leader. I think he had one staff member and he traveled all around Australia as a sort of, as a one man show on, you know, trains and, and so on. And I had the great privilege of, of meeting someone whose parents literally used to host Menzies when he came to Sydney in the 1940s. Oh, really? And, and, ah. you know, yeah, and Menzies, Menzies, Menzies would stay somewhere in Mossman and he would you know, stay there because I don't think he got travelling allowance in those days and it was all out of your own pocket. Menzies was never a very wealthy man himself. He may have dressed like one, but he was never a wealthy man himself. And he did all of this to try and resuscitate the right of politics. And, and the sort of forgotten people is the sort of beginning testament of where we all sort of stem from. And, I think it was a ranking gratitude of people not to want to defend the Menzian legacy because so I think it was a it was a massive error and I think it's obviously been corrected now because now everyone's trying to drape themselves in Menzies. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, every, everyone's trying to argue. I mean, I remember during the Republic campaign, Amanda Vanstone trying to say that you know, Menzies would have voted for the Republic. Oh, I, think, there, I, think I mean, I, there yeah. is absolutely yeah. no way he would have voted for the Republic and no, he, no, won't, but, he won't vote for a Republic uh, in the no. future either. I mean, that's just, no, no, that's no, just no, completely no. preposterous. No. <laughs> I don't want to verbal anyone, but, but I think it was Amanda Vanstone. Someone said that. No, I won't blame her, but, but it's just wrong. But, but, it, <laughs> but, it, but, it showed, but it showed, though, the value of Menzies. Everyone oh, tried yeah. to drape themselves yeah. in Menzies. Yeah. Is that yeah. he was kind of this figure. If Menzies was alive today, this was before. And people forget that Menzies, you know, Menzies introduced conscription to the Vietnam War. Menzies introduced censorship. Menzies tried to ban the Communist Party. I, I, Menzies, Menzies, if nothing else, had a very strong view of what he believed. Yeah, look, and, and that's right, Gray. I think for small L liberals, Menzies what what he actually believed in more, and and you can obviously understand that through his speeches and writings it's a little bit difficult to marry with your your set of principles if you're a classical liberal there's a lot of con- a lot he's a lot more conservative i think than those who invoke him today in the present day would would understand he's often misquoted i mean people people pick and choose i mean malcolm turnbull who would definitely characterize himself as a classical liberal you know would would choose a lot of menzies um language and quote it verbatim as as this you know this is we share these beliefs common beliefs sure sure sentences and speeches but as a general i think as a general rule yes menzies was 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 very conservative and he was um he was deeply skeptical of the free market you know he was quite and and i think that especially for for the liberals and i'm capital L liberals post sort of the Hawke-Keating reforms, that's hard to understand. And, of course, economics is fashionable too. But also but, young Menzies appeared for the unions. I mean, young Menzies is there in the engineer's case for the unions. Yeah, but that's it's cab many- rank rule, as you know, Gray. It's, as it's, you know, he did, rank, share, he, he did not share the view. Rank, but his, father, <laughs> his family had union people in it. Yeah, I mean, sure. You don't, you don't yeah. end up being briefed by the unions in those days with, by accident. I mean, they're not – so I'm not, not knocking it. I mean, we've all done – I mean – that's part of law. You're right. It was a high court case. He was a young barrister. He's was. not going to say no. No, no, of course not. No. You're, you're, of course not. You're abso- I assure you, you, you absolutely will not. But, but, but the funny thing with Menzies is that he did have that scepticism of free market economics. I mean, he'd lived through the Depression. He would have grown up as a young boy in the, in the wake of 1890s depression, which was, which was terrible. And I think it's hard for people today to understand for that generation that went through depressions and wars, just how that shaped their experience. Because, I mean, the closest we would get to it perhaps is those terrible scenes, I'm not sure what it was like in Melbourne, those terrible scenes in Sydney when COVID 
hit and businesses shut. Of people literally lining up around the block on, in Centrelink offices. I mean, that was shocking. I, th- I found that absolutely appalling. And that that is, in a sense, I guess the closest thing I can think of in my lifetime to that is. But in Menzies' case, yeah, you, know, you lived with that daily. You had people lining up, wharfs, work, etc., for any job they could get that paid money to, to feed families and so on. And so you grew up with that. And so if you'd grown up in that with banks failing and obviously ca- cases of fraud and people being minimally capitalised and the like. You would grow up with a certain scepticism that the market can keep itself functioning without some sort of oversight from government. And I think that would have been Menzies' approach based on his own experience. In the same way, people who grew up in, say, the 60s and 70s with an overregulated economy, which they found sclerotic and the like, and, and they wanted to reform all that because that was what they grew up with. And so people are very much, I think, products more than they will admit. They are products of their own personal experience. But Menzies was also a huge champion of private enterprise. So this is where there is a, a, a tension. So he was, he was violently opposed to bank nationalisation. He did not see a place for government to run the sort of commercial, well, banking, but, but really commercial life should be operated by, by private citizens and private enterprises. So you, you know, he wanted, regulation of markets and and the, this was the time of the Australian settlement so we had tariffs we had you know wage arbitration and and the like but he he did encourage huge levels of private investment which generated great economic activity in Australia through the 50s and 60s was was prosperous wages wages did go up and we had great trading relations burgeoning ones with the United States and with Asia particularly Japan so that again is a is a is a tension so that duty to community the the regulated markets but you know, encouraging people to make their own way in life um, and to invest in their own businesses and be successful and embrace that too, embrace success. He was certainly no opponent of, of great success and great wealth. He just didn't think that great wealth should, with, with great wealth should come vested interests and power. I, th- I agree. And the other thing with Menzies though that he did put an emphasis on, which current politics just has not to the degree that it should, which I have gone on about it, at some length, and to his credit, a smaller liberal like Tim Wilson has, and that is housing. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah. Menzies talked about you know, homes material. The actual, the actual linkage between a right of centre politics and home ownership should be so obvious to anyone with half a brain that I that we do not need to discuss it. But judging by the last nine years, it is actually something that we do need to discuss because clearly there are people on the right of politics who think that they could have a political future in a country where fewer and fewer people own their own home, and it's just impossible. I mean, there's no there's no jurisdiction of renters or insecure housing anywhere in the world that is not a socialist jurisdiction. There just isn't, and it's and it's an absolutely fool's errand for anyone in the right of politics not to be emphasising home ownership. And one of my great grievances, to go back to the question about the power of the state, if I was a conservative and I was in charge of the national government, and particularly if I had Section 96, which is the grants power, I would be putting targets to the states every year. You've got to build so many new dwellings, net, not. Not gross, net. And you've got to, and, and to the degree that you fail to meet these targets, assistance from the Commonwealth is reduced. And you, you, you legislate it so it just is mechanically applies. And you basically flog the states to build homes. And the states will not learn except the hard way through deprivation. Again, rewarding virtue, punishing vice. The states will not learn except the hard way that they have to build new homes and they have to sprawl. We're a massive country. We've got plenty of capacity for sprawl. And if you're on the right of politics, you should see the suburbs and the regions as your friends. Those are your people. Those are the people that you should be out protecting 
defending and making more of. You should be making that. You shouldn't be forcing people to accept living in small boxes in the inner city, um, which no no rational person could want to inflict on anyone, particularly in Sydney. And uh, and 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 you should you should be seeing that way, and you should be absolutely unabashed about that. I mean, one of the big problems I think with the right of the right of politics generally is is they're full of very nice people uh, who mean well and and who are nice but have absolutely no ability to make their own case on its own terms. And you should be absolutely blunt about this and you should say, look, people who are in the Greens, their job is to obstruct development because they want to preserve things. And that's that's what they do and I respect that. That's what they do. And you should say, actually, this is what we do. We're about you know making it easier for families to live well and to have a home of their own and to build their own lives. And to do and from that, they do what they do. And that's what we're about. And, and we're about using government to, to achieve those ends. You know, we're about using government to make sure the country is secure, that it is solvent, and that it offers more of a future for more people. And, you know, we're an immigration society. I, I'm an unabashed believer in a bigger Australia. I've always wanted a bigger Australia. I think, think Australia with more people is good. But we have to create situations where it's much easier for more people to come here. You can only do that by building housing and building dwelling. I think that's very, very important. I mean, my, my other my other particularly right-of-centre hobby also I do not understand is the refusal to make the case for nuclear energy. Mm. It's zero emissions. It's, it's an obvious strategic benefit to the country. It would be fantastic for STEM. It would literally soak up every STEM graduate you can find, particularly the more whinier ones. You know, can't complain now. We've got a mature nuclear industry. Nuclear obviously serves a massive national security objective, not just for the submarines, but the facts are when we replace the LHDs, we're going to most likely replace them with, with, with a large platform that's going to have a nuclear plant. I mean, it's just, it's just antediluvian that we as a country do not embrace nuclear power. It's just it's just madness. I've never understood it. I've never understood the cowardice about it. And when people say, well, what, I mean, as if every polling I've seen, the public is is more than open to it. But more to the point, even if they're not open, it's your job as a leader to go out and make that case. Well, that's you know, right. You're the you that's right. The country. Just because the polls say it's a bit unpopular doesn't mean that, yeah. you know, if you believe in it, if, I mean, I'm not saying yes. it, politicians should promote policies they think are bonkers. Of course not. But, but if you believe in something, Fight for it. Persuade people. Yes. I mean, that's what Menzies did. Look, I, I, yes. I, I think n- nuclear power, um, especially in a country that has such – we're the second largest source of uranium reserves. No one's suggesting that Australia become a nuclear weapon state, nuclear arm. We, of course, will take our treaty obligations seriously. And, you know, to a country like Australia, we're certainly not aspiring to contribute to the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the world. We've got a great track record on all those things. But if you, you look at me, the headlines in the media over the last few days, we've got a, a huge energy crisis globally. And, Australia's got significant gas reserves, but they have been, the development of which have been stymied left, right and centre by state governments, by green activists. And so we're not, we, we shoot ourselves in the foot over energy. We shoot ourselves in the foot over, over gas. We're shooting ourselves in the foot over not having a proper conversation about nuclear. I mean, the best time to have a conversation and to make decisions about nuclear was definitely 30, 40 years ago. But we, the next best is today, of course, a um, well known cliche. But, um, I am incredibly frustrated that, uh, neither side of politics is, seems to be willing to have this debate, well, especially as well, there's so much concern about climate change. Well, look at nuclear. If you're worried about emissions, look at nuclear as an option because actually it's pretty low. Em- it, it doesn't have emissions like coal and gas. I mean, the strange, the strange thing about the nuclear debate is, is first of all, as you say about emissions, it's, it's, it's zero emissions. It's reliable. It's scalable. Yeah. So, so, you know, you literally can have your, your reactors running and, and you, so you don't have to like scale issues that, that you have, say, with other forms of, 
of power source. And the other thing is, is that other countries use it. I mean, it's not, it's not like an experimental technology. The no. French basically run on nuclear power. Yeah. I mean, the Americans are scaling up their nuclear power, the British, British building new yeah. plants. Yeah. And, and probably the advent of small, small modular reactors will change everything because it'll just make it cheaper for everyone to actually go nuclear. But, it, but it's the strangest debate to me because the Australian Workers' Union was, came out for, nu- for nuclear energy. There's a broad swathe of sensible people in the middle who understand the case for nuclear power and, and, and you could easily make it. And you, if, you're, if you want to be the leader of the country, you have to advocate things that are good for the country and you have to have the courage of your convictions. And at the end of the day, I've never been in politics myself, but I, I do not see the point of doing it and enduring it because it looks like a terrible life be frank um i do not see the point of doing it if you're not advocating for big things like if yeah. you're not thinking big i just i just do not understand this i do not understand the point of doing it for small things and i think one of the things that has just annoyed me about particularly the last nine years is just how small and petty i guess the sort of right of center's agenda has been and housing and nuclear is sort of like two things that i would hammer um it has got significantly better on the defense front recently but but just but just the small way things are conceived of. Well, I think and, the twenty twenty two election campaign was a small campaign too. We yes. we ended up with basically, and twenty nineteen too in a way. Um, you know, both campaigns were about the denigration of an individual. I mean, Bill Shorten was denigrated yeah. in nineteen, and then Scott yeah. Morrison in twenty twenty two. You know, like like them or loathe them, I don't even think that's really relevant to the mm. the prosperity of the nation, the happiness of 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 our citizens. It's what what these people are going to do. I mean, what Scott Morrison wanted to do or what Bill Shorten wanted to do, they might have been right or wrong, but what were they going to do and how is that going to change the character of the nation and our destiny? And, look, I found it quite curious, um, just back to home ownership, Gray, that um, Scott Morrison announced a home ownership policy uh, a week before the end of the campaign went, you know, let's be honest, about 30% of people had already voted, so <laughs> whoops, bit late. And I, mean, I thought that policy was was really interesting. And why weren't we having a debate about that a year ago? Two years, it, well, why, why aren't we having a debate about compulsory superannuation just as a, as a system? I mean, you are forcing people to do a certain thing with their income. I mean, a conservative would say, yes, you save for your retirement, you should look after yourself. Of course, take that responsibility. And I'd like to think that people would make that decision. But if your decision is you'd like to prioritize buying a home over putting, putting, um, Ten thousand dollars or so in a in a super fund every year that some some fund manager gets to decide what to do with, not you. These, I think that's a that's a pretty Australian policy, fundamental yeah, policy. Look, there is no excuse for for Morrison waiting till one week till the actual election day, and as you say, when so many people have already voted, to to roll out what was a fundamentally sound policy. One of the most stupid rationalisations I heard from it was someone said, "Well, you know." Very, very concerned that they won't have a campaign from superannuation funds. Well, if you believe in a policy yeah. and it's good and it's going to change things, you're probably going to get some opposition from somewhere. And that's where you you harden up and you go out and make the case. And the strangest thing about it is I said, your natural response to these superannuation funds is that you're also going to have a provisor that everyone's default superannuation fund from here on in is the, is the future fund. Now, that would that would absolutely terrify the super funds. If, if people could literally just have their superannuation, you didn't have to worry about portability and the like anymore. And you said the future fund is going to be the default superannuation fund for everyone. I said, you should be smart enough to think of this. I said, this is not brain surgery. I said, you should be smart enough to think of this. I said, instead of rolling things out in the last week of a campaign, it looks desperate and it looks, and it looks, 
also, let's let's be real here. Like there is just a complete lack of thinking about what you actually believe, and it's really well. This is what came back in a focus group, and I think someone joked, and this would be true of Morris, and I'm sure this is true of Turnbull, true of Abbott. They used to joke that the beating heart of the government was a focus group, and I'm afraid that's pathetic. But that's the sort of nadir that they're in. And to go back to our earlier conversation, when you had people like Lyons, Menzies, and, and to be fair, Fraser and people like that, they had a certain set, set of beliefs that you could actually nominate. You could, you could write them down what they are. Yeah. And you could identify them. And now they're not perfect. They're all, they're all men of their times. They're all men sure, of, of sure, sure. practical reality. They would have had shortcomings, but they had certain core beliefs. By the end of the, of this sort of nine years, I really could not pin down to you what the core beliefs of any of the people involved were. And I think, I think that is a really, really big problem as we talk in this podcast is that you, you cannot point to them and say, what actually do you believe in? Because it was never quite clear what the agenda was for the next three years any more than it was clear what the agenda for the last nine years was beyond survival. And I think that is a really, really big problem for right-of-centre politics is this this lack of clarity, as I said, about what the case is that you're making and the cases that you're prosecuting. What do you actually believe in? And to some degree, people say, well, you know, it's Menzies' party, it's broad church, and it's always going to be hard to have everyone agree on things, to which the natural rejoinder is, what are you trying to achieve? At the end of the day, it's a party about the... about protecting the country, right, right of centre politics is ultimately to some degree protective. You're about protecting the country, about protecting the country's security, its solvency, its families, and and, pros- and prospering those. That's what fundamentally, if we disagree on everything else, we can at least agree on that. And that's where you start. And so, you know, the housing thing is a natural part of that. Nuclear energy is, is an obvious part of that. You know, a lot of the defence things we're trying to do is a natural part of that. You know, expanding trade with other countries, that's a natural part of it, and so on and so forth. I mean, these are all basics that are, easy to talk about, but they're actually even easy to do if you keep your eye on it. But if you're distracted, and again, this comes back to this point of the problem in politics of so many people having had no life outside of politics. If you've never had a life outside of politics, then yes, your life is a focus group. That is all those things. You know, if and, and I think it's a real problem that we have in politics with with that. And, and there are certain political skills you do need, like the politics to trade like everything else, you do need certain political skills. But I think fundamentally, you have to know what you're about what you believe in and what the case is that you're making. And I think that is something that comes from within you. I, don't, I think it's something that's very hard to conjure up in the last few weeks of the election campaign. And I think that was a really big problem with right-of-centre politics in the last few years is just the sheer lack of of, of conscious belief or, or some sort of conviction in what they believe in. And so, like, to your early point when you said about, like, the lockdowns and so on and how this fit into the Australian character and so on, I, I think one of the problems with, how the right approached lockdowns. And I was someone who defended the lockdown, so I'm not going to pretend to you I'm any sort of libertarian, I'm not. But the, the fact that people were scared to say, okay, well, once the country is 80% vaccinated, because that was generally the herd immunity, market, we go back we go back to normal. We don't stay, stagger this, we go back to normal. We reopen the borders, we're a country that's dependent on trade and people coming to the country, we reopen borders and we go back to normal. And no one sort of wanted to have a fight with the sort of public health grifters who, who sort of, you know, anything you did was going to risk the lives of millions. Everyone was going to die. You know, no one wanted to have that fight. And actually, a sensible right of centre politics would say, no, sorry, we locked the country down. We got people vaccinated. We ran very, very strong campaigns of vaccination. I'm a strong believer in vaccination myself. I got, you know, got all the jabs I could possibly get. And after that, we've done, we've listened to you and you've had your bit and we've done the protective side of you. Now we're reopening the country again because unfortunately we have to make a living mm. and we have to get on with life. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, if you look at countries like Singapore that are sort of like sensible country run by adults, they managed to do this. And 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 I think that was something that the right of centre politics could have learned from. Actually, thank you, Dr. So-and-so. That's very interesting. I'm sure you're on top of this. Thank you, you know, Norman Swan. Yeah. 
and, and, and we're actually going to get back to running the country because we're the government. We're elected mm. to do that. And people yeah. do not like this, they'll throw us out. But we're going to make an affirmative case. The country needs to reopen. We need to get back to life. Need to get back to normal. And, you know, states, states which once they've achieved their 80%, that's it. You've got to reopen as well. And again, you use the power of the federal government to make clear to them that we're reopening things. And, and I think that was something that people were afraid to do. And I've, I've never quite understood why, again, why go into politics to be afraid? Well, indeed, indeed. And as you say, you're talking about the broad church of the, of, of the Liberal Party. It's all very well to be broad and, you know, bring in your conservatives and your classical liberals and, and try and make it work. But, but don't be so broad that you stand for absolutely nothing and have no clear set of values. So you just end up being a kind of a broad kind of, well, as uh, John Roscombe, the executive director of the IPA said, it's an interfaith dialogue. It's actually not a, <laughs> it's not a broad church. <laughs> I mean, they don't actually share a religion. It's a blamange. Uh, and, uh, you know, agree, agree with them or not. Fine. But, but if, if there's nothing clear that, people believe in and how can you even disagree with with nothing so uh yeah and my, my, my prob- I, like john like my problem with the broad church thing is 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 the you know there's an anglican formulation which is all can some do none must but unfortunately to run a government there has to be a must in there i'm afraid the, mm. you can you can have your disagreements but at a certain point there is a must imperative that has to take its place and i think that is a problem with the broad church is that actually you can all have your d- debates, but once we've made a decision, we have to crack on with things. And, yeah. and, and to be fair, conservatives have to learn that sometimes the, the wets will, you know, the swallow liberals, they'll get their way. And, you know, that's, that's part of life in a, in a mature government. And, you know, some, sometimes people in the inner city have to sort of accept the fact that, you know, the world does linger on beyond the inner city. And there are people out there who, who also do matter. Uh, and they have to have their needs attended to. So, you know, that's, that's part of that, that broad church. But I think there was a real lack of that that must and and that imperative for action. And the problem is if you stop doing things, I think the public take the view, you, you've lost interest in being in government and you really need a spell on the bench. You know, it's, it's yeah. like a bit like football. You know, if people are trying to get you the ball but you're not interested in running it, they'll take you off, they'll replace you with someone who is. And so that's, that's I think, there's a lot of that in politics. And I think, you know, as I said to you, there was a lack of any sort of conscious beliefs and I think just it's a really just a lost, it'll be looked upon as a lost period in Australian history. And unfortunately... <laughs> You know, with, with, with Abbott and Turnbull, you're sort of the last gasp of that sort of boomer generation that was, you know, that was formed by the spirit of 75 and Whitlam. I mean, the sooner that goes, the better for the country, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Are you a millennial, Gray? No, I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm an ex-flyer. So, so no, I'm not. But, but if you grew up, if you grew up with the boomers like I did and you yeah. heard about, oh my God, if you heard about Whitlam, et cetera, and you, uh, you know, it, it left it left scarring. Let's put it that way. So so it's just I think I think the sooner we sort of get rid of that and we sort of move on. And the other thing is l- leaving partisanship and ideology to one side. There are certain practical solutions, as I said, like with housing, energy, and the like. They're just reality things. They're not left or right. They're just no. they're just realities. Are gonna, they're just realities going to punch you in the face. You know, in the sense, you know, like the war in Ukraine does. There are certain things that life will throw at you that you cannot answer dogmatically ideologically and this is this will be a problem the current government has particularly on the energy front is that there are just certain realities you cannot dodge and and the government the government would have faced that if it's re-elected on housing is that we have a huge problem with housing in this country the 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 stock of housing and who owns it is absolutely shifted towards one segment of society if you're 40 and under you actually have inherited a much tougher lot than your parents knew yeah. and i think yeah. having having people you know on the right of public sort of wag their finger 
about, well, you know, when I was your age, I did this or that. Well, the fact is that you're not their age Stop, now. stop eating your avo- smashed avo on toast yeah, yeah, and save avo. up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have no idea. When I, when I was your age, you know, I, I finished. Yeah, I my ate my cornflakes at home. That was yeah. all I did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I finished my studies at university and then I went down the mine. And then when I came out, I went back to university. And that's what it was like. There was no one helping me. I mean, those sort of things that you hear from you know, sort of older generation people, just absolutely ridiculous. And strangest thing is a lot of them would have been people in the 60s who hated it when the World War II generation scolded them, but they sort of became what they absolutely hated, which is actually natural human tendencies to become yeah. that which you deplore. No, well, name. look what happened to Hillary and, Clinton when she said that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and and you've, you've got to actually understand the needs of your own people. And yeah. a lot of that's not ideological. A lot of that's the representative part of a representative democracy. you actually got to represent people. And you've got to represent everyone, including the people who don't vote. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Although I'd pick you up on home ownership, I do think that there is an ideological overlay there. You can either believe that in, individuals own their you know, private home ownership or you believe in a, a publicly funded sort of state housing system, and they are the ideological differences and, yes. you know, different sides of politics. I mean, it's certainly that Labor wouldn't be massive proponents of public housing like they were back in the, the sort of 60s, 70s, but there are overlays of that. We see that in some of the, the Labor state governments. They're promoting sort of more public housing style schemes yes. to enable people to at least live in a home that they might have some ability to live in long term. How do we defend our nation? Do we think China is a, is a threat or not? And do we, do we allow China to um, expand its influence and military installations throughout the South Pacific, potentially threatening Australian security. They are are not ideological. They are just absolutely the duty of government to get something done and find solutions. Very quickly. But that was my view on vaccinations as well. There's no ideological side to a virus. The the virus will spread Mm. and vaccinations will weigh of ameliorating the, the, the brutal nature of that spread. And so these are these are just practical things that you're in government you have to actually take charge of. And I think sure. just to, to wind this up, this is where you need a conservatism of doing and of, of doing and of governing. And you need to make sure that that conservatism of doing and governing is far away from say the libertarian grift and the sort of and the sort of and the fringes. And I think that is something I think also the right always has to be very but, careful of is that But ide- the ideological question on vaccinations would be do you make people have a vaccination? Do they or do they have the sort of sovereignty over their own body? I mean I I, I personally think you, you choose what to do with your own body. You, you know, you look after yourself, you eat healthily, you, you know, don't eat sugar, you don't drink, or you don't drink too much, you don't smoke, you get your vaccinations, you take your vitamins or whatever. They, they're the things that you choose to do to look after yourself. But does the state, should the state tell you to do all those, or no, force you, for, mandate you to do all those things? And, and as you were saying before, for the benefit, perhaps the, the downstream benefit of society, you're not overweight, therefore you won't be a burden on the health system. There are arguments that that's a good approach. But I think fundamentally the, the sovereignty of the individual should be paramount there, that they get to choose how to live their own life and look after their own bodies, surely. So, well, it's funny. You're asking me as a Catholic whether I believe in my body, my choice. So, um, Oh, okay. That's <laughs> no, another, another thing. <laughs> no, but I'm saying it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, historically, conservatism, particularly of a certain type, has always frowned on the idea of my body, my choice. Whether whether it's abortion or conscription of bodies for war, there's always or been euthanasia, a actually, or, yeah, yeah, euthanasia and so on. So, mm. as a conservative Catholic, particularly, I had no trouble with mandates for vaccines. Mm. I mean, the fact that you have a duty to the whole, 
and your your particular concerns, you may have a valid medical objection, but I, don't, I just don't think they would be the numbers that would be. But if you have a valid medical objection, that's different. But to people saying, look, I just don't want vaccine. I don't want vaccine because I don't like vaccines or I, I'm suspicious of vaccines and the like. I mean, it's going to put five G in your body, or you yeah, know. But what I'm, I'm saying that's I'm saying that's a very interesting question. It's just it's it was funny to me that the vaccine mandate. Very often, in my from what I saw, the people who were most for vaccine mandates would otherwise have been my body, my choice on abortion. The people who would have been pro-life on abortion were the most anti-mandate, often, not always, but often anti-mandates on vaccines. And so it's kind of interesting thing about how there's a lack of consistency on yeah. either side yeah. when, it, when it really comes down to it. So as someone who's never, ever put a huge amount by bodily autonomy um, as, as a conservative person, so I, I've really never had any problems, but there will be people you'll run into who will not see the problem that's there. Mm. And... Um, yeah, historically, conservatism, we've often conscripted people for things they didn't want to do. We've done it in wartime. Sure. We do it all the time. We conscript their money via taxation. Um, yeah, that's something we do. And it's, it's very, but I'm saying, I'm not trying to throw in a grenade at the very end of the conversation, but I'm saying it's a very interesting philosophical problem that it, it honest is. people need to wrestle with. Yeah, but I guess, uh, you know, ultimately everyday people, they don't, they don't have to be consistent. I mean, it's nice to be no, intellectually no, no. consistent, no, but they no. can say, well, I just have a difference no. of opinion on those two things, even if the intellectual basis of those opinions is, is, you know, no, polar opposite. Um, but I think I, I, I probably lean to the, my body, my choice, my choice to that's, serve that's, my country. And, you know, maybe, I, well, I'm, I'm clearly not, not, uh, you're the weak. I'm, I'm the wig. Yeah. You found me out. You found me out. But, but great. It's been lovely, lovely talking to you today. Um, I did want to get into, um, uh, a discussion on the red Tory, but I think we know what a red Tory is. It's you. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And people like you. And it, it really is, um, a, a fascinating conversation. And I think again, um, goes to show why we should, we should think a lot more about our history. So we understand our present and can inform our future and make make the best decisions for for the country. So, Gray, thank you very much for joining me on Afternoon Light. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.